Welcome to another edition of Rebellion Research's educational video series. Today we have a legend with us. Uh, we're very excited to have Professor Alan Dershowitz, one of the most brilliant legal minds on the planet and a fellow professor with my uh, sister, Sarah Fleiss. So very excited. Professor Dershowitz, thank you so much for coming today. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, during these days of pandemic, uh, any, any attempt to uh, educate is welcome. So I'm happy to participate in your educational program. Yes, thank you. Yes, this, uh, so this educational series um, you know, lends into my teaching of AI uh, that I do at a few graduate schools. But uh, today I want to talk about responsible facial recognition. There has been a lot of talk about civil liberties, and I'll let you start with that. Well, every modern technology uh, is a double-edged sword. I mean, there's a great uh, a cartoon that I always love, and it shows uh, an old man in the 12th century or something writing on a scroll, and his young son walks in carrying a book, and the father says, oh my God, this is the end of civilization. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, books instead of scrolls, who ever heard of that? Um, <clears throat> at the end of the 19th century, um, the apocryphal story goes that they tried to shut down the patent office because everything that could possibly have been invented was invented. So, we now know that when I was growing up in the 1950s and 60s, nobody could have imagined what artificial intelligence would be like. I was very fortunate to be friendly with Marvin Minsky, who was one of the pioneers of uh, artificial intelligence. And Every time we got together, he would uh, thrill me with what was coming and scare me. And he recognized the double-edged sword. So let's, let's focus particularly on facial recognition. It's a phenomenal tool. Uh, if used uh, properly, uh, it could you know, help prevent terrorism uh, at airports, help prevent terrorism in crowded areas and locations. <clears throat> it could help find missing people. Uh, there are so many incredibly positive uses to which it could be put and has been put and will be put. Um, but it also can be used improperly by tyrannical regimes to identify dissenters and uh, deter and discourage uh, free speech. So the key to any uh, invention, any technology, any aspect of artificial intelligence is to make sure we stay in front of the technology, that we control the technology. You know, there are all these movies where, uh, you know, humans invent the technology and then the technology takes over and destroys uh, humanity. We're not there at this point, but we have to be in front of it. And whenever there's a technology being developed, we have to consider the civil liberties implications. You know, when President Carter was in the White House, he required, I think it was him, that every new law have attached to it an environmental impact statement and a human rights impact statement. And that's a good thing. And I think that every technology should have attached to it uh, a study as to how it could be abused and how to prevent the abuse. Look, let's be clear. You're never gonna ban technology. Technology always prevails, uh, even if you outlaw it it prevails in the gray market, in the black market, uh, in the deep web, it prevails. Nobody has ever succeeded in stopping the progress of technology. But we have a mixed record 
in controlling the abuses of technology. Now, I'm told, you're the expert in this, I'm not, but I'm told by friends who have some expertise in this that there are real problems with at least today's technology on facial recognition, that it suffers from some of the same flaws that human recognition suffers from. We know, for example, that white people um, have a much lower rate of effectively being able to identify black people um, in a lineup, for example, because we tend to stereotype. And there is a concern that facial identification, where much of the programming is obviously done by um, majority population, uh, could have implicit within it some degree of uh, prejudice or over-prediction or over-identification based on racial and other considerations. So we have to make sure that we control for these potential problems. On FIDO, one of the coolest facial recognition companies that's working with Scotland Yard uh, is also run by a friend of mine, Hussein Kusai. And the way they've been doing it is, you know, knowing that, you know, dark skin creates a bias for the AI, you know, they have to bring in other biometrics. And so if you team up facial recognition with other known biometrics, you have an accuracy ratio that goes from 60 to 70 to, you know, 99, 99 and a half. So, you know. Well, that's great. That's great if that can happen. I'll tell you an anecdote from my early days as a lawyer, a law clerk in Washington, D.C., to show you how these problems can really develop. So a a white man uh, robbed a liquor store in downtown Washington, Mm -hmm. and the police were chasing him. And they sent a very well-trained police dog to stop him and, and grab him. And the police dog was chasing the white criminal, the man who had just robbed the liquor store, Mm -hmm. but sitting on a stoop to the left of where the dog was running was an African-American man who was an employee of the Washington Post sitting outside eating his lunch. The dog saw him, took a sharp left turn and grabbed the African-American man. Mm -hmm. And so the African-American man then sued the police department and in the discovery in the lawsuit if i'm remembering correctly it's a half a century ago uh it turned out that the police in washington dc were training police dogs using black colored images and therefore the police dog was trained inadvertently nobody intended this to happen to alert when the police dog saw somebody of darker skin rather than somebody of lighter skin. If that could happen with dogs, it could happen with uh, artificial intelligence as well. So, I mean, you're right, uh, increasing and, 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 and creating other approaches that complement facial recognition, uh, obviously will increase the accuracy. I mean, there's always two questions when you're dealing with accuracy. One, false positives and the other false negatives. And in order to decrease the number of false positives, you almost always have to increase the number of false negatives. There's no free lunch. Um, Nobody has figured out a solution that both at the same time increases the number, uh, I'm sorry, let me take that back. Nobody has figured out a way of both decreasing the number of false positives and at the same time decreasing the number of false negatives. For example, when you set a machine, when you set a machine at the airport at a certain level 
to identify guns or metal. If you set it too high, there'll be false positives. If you set it too low, there'll be false negatives. At the airport, it's much more important to avoid false negatives. You don't want anybody in the airport with a gun than to avoid false positives. False positive only means you check them and see if he really has a gun. So you always have to ask the question, how many false positives are we prepared to tolerate in order to avoid a high number of false negatives? And then you have to put the opposite question. The same question applies to facial recognition. Uh, that's funny, that, that's an argument I had with my old partner, Spencer Greenberg. Uh, uh, we, we used to always fight about, you know, how much risk did we want to let the AI have? And, you know, it's, it's, some, it's, it's an age old question, uh, really, you know, how much you know, risk versus reward one wants to take, uh, you know, whether it's technology or investing or you know, software programming. I want to- Well, uh, you know, take... we have that as part of our criminal justice system. Right. We have a ratio. Yeah. We say better for 10 guilty to go free than for one innocent to be wrongly convicted. In other words, right. turned into a more scientific language, better for there to be uh, 10 uh, uh, false negatives than for there to be even one false positive. And that ratio actually goes way back to the Bible, with Abraham arguing with God over the sinners of Saddam. And God wants to kill all the people in Saddam. And, and Abraham says, but what if there are some false positives there? What if there are some righteous people? And they argue about the number, and yeah. they ultimately get to 10 and then Abraham stops. No, 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 no. Very much also, you know, reminds me of the, you know, the Passover and uh, the eldest son. Uh, great point, Professor. But um, on that note, let's jump back to your uh, career as a defense attorney. Uh, right. Growing up, I was fascinated uh, with your work on the Von Bülow case. That was a landmark case. Uh, you know, I studied with professors Surratt and uh, Hadley Arkies at Amherst College, and you know, and we, we did a lot of uh, work on the Von Bülow case. And it was really just uh, the first time a defense attorney brought so much technology in, and you were so successful at that. And that really kind of pivoted the justice system in, you know, uh, my professors, in my opinion. I, I would love uh, your take on where mm -hmm. technology and the justice system is going in the future. Well, you know, when I was hired at Harvard at age 25, I was actually hired. I was like 23 and a half when they offered me the job. It was shocking. Um, they hired me to be what I called the AND professor, A-N-D professor. Why? Because everything I taught over 50 years had an AND in it. Law and psychiatry, law and medicine, law and science, law and literature, law and philosophy, law and neuropsychology. Because I believe that the law is an empty vessel. It is a process. It is a methodology. And it has to be filled with technology and science and wisdom. So, and So, when I was retained by Klaus von Bülow, I said to him, what I'm going to bring to this case not only is legal sophistication, at that point, you know, 25 years of teaching at Harvard, mm -hmm. but a, a greater ability to understand the science than most lawyers have. And so we figured out, uh, first of all, I put together a team of medical students, law students, technology people. We figured out that the government's theory could not medically be correct, that there could not have been insulin that was injected into Sonny Von Bülow. And we proved it scientifically in half a dozen different ways. Uh, we then did the same thing in the O.J. Simpson case. In the O.J. Simpson case, the crucial piece of evidence was a sock that had O.J. Simpson's blood and the blood of the victims on it. 
and we were able to prove that the blood was planted on the sock from a test tube, not from the human bodies, because the blood had EDTA, a chemical that is not found in the human body. It's an anticoagulant, but it's found only in test tubes to prevent the blood from coagulating. Now, whether Simpson was guilty or innocent, the jury believed that the police planted a piece of evidence, which they did, which explains why that very unpopular verdict occurred. And I've had, I would say, my murder cases, I've had now, I don't know, two dozen murder cases, attempted murder cases, somewhere in that vicinity. And I've won almost all of them. And I've won almost all of them by the use of science. Um, I had a case where a man was uh, accused of injecting his wife with sexinocholine, a no. drug that will stop the heart from beating. And uh, we did all the scientific research and proved that it couldn't have happened. Um, I had another case where a woman was accused of killing her husband. And we were able to prove that the method of death that the prosecution used could not scientifically have occurred. So what I think, if you ask about my major contribution to criminal law theory and criminal yep. law practice, it really is introducing science into the courtroom and then the courtroom into the classroom. That's what I did. What did you learn most from both the Simpson and the Von Bülow cases? I mean, everything in life is a teaching uh, moment, especially as a fellow teacher. I know part of why we teach is to learn. So, you know, what, what did you learn from both Simpson and Von Bülow? What I learned is what I then taught. I taught my criminal law students, you cannot be a criminal lawyer today without knowing science, without understanding science, without understanding DNA, without understanding artificial intelligence, without understanding scientific methodology, without understanding Bayesian theory of mathematics. You have to understand what probabilities are all about. You have to understand false positives, true positives. You have to really immerse yourself. You know, the law is very simple in many ways. Mm -hmm. Any relatively smart student in two years can master our legal system. Um, what I had urged, none of the law schools have followed me, is the first two years should be law, but then the third year of law school should be science, should be wisdom, should be learning the things that fill the empty places in the law. And today, more and more law schools are giving courses on law and science, DNA, um, and I think that's a very positive development. So what I learned is that you have to know science and that you have to use science, and you have to know more than the scientists do if you want to effectively cross-examine them, because science is wonderful, but scientists are often deeply flawed people, and particularly if they're paid witnesses, expert witnesses, you have to expose their weak points. So, so maybe you could agree that the Simpson case was rather like World War I, in that it was an instance where you had one side so technologically savvy and then another side still using horses, if you will, and the L.A. County Prosecutor's Office would be like the Polish army, still using horses and spears while the German army had already accelerated towards uh, tanks. Is, is that, you know, would you say that's a fair assessment or? Um, partly. Um, the, the L.A. Uh, DA's office made some deliberate willful mistakes. First of all, they picked yep. two relatively incompetent prosecutors to try the case because they engaged in identity politics. They yep. wanted a woman and an African-American man. There were many, many more qualified people to try that case in the office. Second, they didn't use jury selection methodologies. And um, the prosecutor 
believed erroneously that black women on the jury would be more favorably inclined toward the women victim than the black defendant. And our jury expert gave us a somewhat different uh, assessment. And so, yeah, and then they made blunder after blunder. Uh, they had O.J. Simpson try on the glove in front of the jury. They could have had him try on the glove outside the jury's presence under California law. But they were so arrogant yeah. that they had him do it in front of the jury. And, and he then, I was there in the courtroom when that happened that day. He walked up to the jury and just showed it to them and said, it doesn't fit. It doesn't yeah. fit. It's too small. And that led to, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Again, I'm not here to defend the verdict in the O.J. Simpson case, but to explain it. And I think science helps explain it. Our side used only science. We introduced no witnesses, no eyewitnesses. Um, we only introduced reputable scientists. And we wanted to keep the focus away from the individuals and focus on the evidence and the facts. And I think that's what led us to the result of that case. Do you think also if they had tried it um, in Brentwood, that would have made a significant difference to as opposed to downtown? It might have, but that was a deliberate decision in order to put it in the media center of Los Angeles. And also, they wanted a predominantly black jury because they wanted a conviction by a black jury in order to avoid a Rodney King phenomenon. Yes. So there were a lot of tactical decisions uh, made. And, um, you know, in the Von Bulow case, too, uh, they were overconfident. They came up with a theory before they had the facts. The theory was that he injected her with insulin. And um, we were able to prove quite easily in the end that there was no insulin in the case, that uh, she went into a coma as the result of reactive hypoglycemia and a range of other matters that were not criminal in nature. And so in the end, the jury concluded there was no crime. It was a tragedy, but no crime. Yeah, no, uh, uh, very interesting. So have you had done any work with natural language processing? I have to bring that up since I have so many students working on that. Uh, no, uh, you, know, uh, you know, for somebody who has won all these cases based on science, um, I, I'm not, uh, you know, I read a lot when I get a case uh, and I study science a lot, but I'm, I'm not active in scientific organizations. Yes, yeah, no, 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 I, I definitely understand. Um, well, I, I guess, you know, turning back towards uh, civil rights and civil liberties, with coronavirus, you know, we have so many patients being tracked now. Is this just a complete forfeiture of our civil liberties and civil rights? Uh, can you comment on that, Professor? Look, the greatness of our Constitution, with its separation of powers and checks and balances and federalism, is we are the first country in the world to understand there are no absolutes. Everything has to be balanced. Everything is a check and a balance. And with coronavirus, the same thing. I wrote an article early on in the virus, in, in early March, in which I said, trust science, but be skeptical of scientists. Yes. And in that article, I made two points. I said, we're now being told by scientists, this is early March, that A, masks don't work, don't wear them, and B, the virus, cannot be spread by aerosol or by air transmission. And I wrote in my article, I don't believe either of those. Uh, if masks were ineffective, why would we insist that doctors wear them? And if there were no aerosol transmission, how could you explain how quickly this is spreading around the world? And of course, I turned out to be right about both of those. And so what you need to do is balance uh, civil liberties against preventing a pandemic. 
uh, I think it's easy to say everybody should be required to wear a mask. There's no great harm in wearing a mask. Mm -hmm. Even if masks don't help, they certainly don't hurt. And so if a state were to compel the wearing of masks of people outdoors or in certain areas, that would be constitutional. A harder question morally is presented by, for example, mandatory vaccination. Um, because we don't know for sure whether we'll have an absolutely safe and effective vaccine within the time frame that we're setting out. And um, uh, therefore, probably the best approach will be first to give the vaccine, if it's developed, to volunteers, fully informed of the risks of taking it, who decide to take it. Uh, people in age categories like mine, who are very vulnerable if they get the disease, and use mandatory vaccination only as a last resort. But if it turns out that we need to do it in order to prevent the spread like we did in the 19, early 1900s, the spread of smallpox, the Constitution will permit mandatory vaccination. And many courts have held, for example, that you can condition children entering public school on showing vaccine certificates. So we're going to see some interesting litigation and the end result will have to be a balance, will have to be struck between the medical needs and the civil liberties needs. And um, I think they will generally uh, support the medical needs and we will see some compromises, perhaps in the absolute liberty of every person to control their body. There's a big difference, for example, between a vaccine that is designed just to help you. If there would be a vaccine to stop cancer or heart attacks, people would have a choice to take it. But if the purpose of the vaccine is to create herd immunity and to prevent the spread and to prevent you from becoming typhoid Mary, then your claims to individual liberty have to be balanced against the claims of society to prevent the pandemic. Well, this has been absolutely fantastic and extremely educational experience. Before I let you go, Professor, I've got to ask, throughout your career, we all have that regret, that one that got away. Is there one you'd like to share with our audience today? Oh, sure. I wish I had never met Jeffrey Epstein, um, because as a result of meeting Jeffrey Epstein, uh, I was, I've been falsely accused uh, by a woman I never met. Fortunately, uh, we have her emails and her book manuscript in which she essentially admits that she never met me and that she's, um, I'm going to be able to prove that she made up the whole story. But look, I never expected to spend the last years of my career in life defending myself against a false charge from somebody I never met. But I wish I hadn't taken the Epstein matter. I wish I had never met Jeffrey Epstein. I did absolutely categorically nothing wrong. But, you know, when Netflix says you did something wrong, it's yeah. very, very hard to uh, rebut that. So um, I'm continuing to fight my fight. I'm fighting it scientifically. The way I fight for uh, defendants, I'm fighting for myself, and in the end, I will prevail because, in the end, truth prevails. And mm -hmm. the truth is, I did nothing wrong. Uh, wonderful, and you know, we hope the the best for you. And and if anybody has any doubts, by the way, please read my book. It's called Guilt by Accusation: The Challenge of Proving Innocence in the Age of Me Too, and it's available free, free on Kindle. Just press the button, you get it. It's only like 120 pages. It's a two-hour read. And I think you'll learn a lot from it about the Me Too movement, about science, and about some of the things we're talking about. Personally, I enjoyed your uh, book in 91, Chutzpah, that my, uh, my father purchased for me. It was an excellent read. And, Thank you. Um, you know, I, I really enjoyed my legal studies at Amherst College. And 
you know, you were quite the focus. You know, Professor Austin Serrett's a well-known liberal and Hallie yeah. is a well-known conservative, yet they both, uh, you know, taught your work at, at Empress, which is funny that, you know, uh, you, your, your work transcends, um, you know, uh, politics. Well, in both ways. Uh, today, many people on the left hate me and many people on the right hate me. And you have to pick your enemies as carefully as you pick your friends. I'm against the extremism of the hard left and against the extremism of the hard right. I think of myself as a centrist liberal, and yeah. that's what's made America thrive. Well, one thing we don't do in rebellion is politics, sex, or religion. We are a strictly educational organization. Uh -huh. um, and you've been wonderful, and you've been a fantastic guest and professor. Uh, I look forward to saying hello when I'm up in Boston visiting my sister. And uh, Thank you so much. See Sarah around the campus. Go say hi to her. So. Stay, stay safe, please. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. Thank you. Thank you.